Did you drink a pint and have a hot dog like we would do in Chicago at Wrigley Field? Who would you say has more pressure to perform, Aston or Mercedes in Austria? You can bring it forward to, say, Alex Albon, Pierre Gasly, uh, Carlos Sainz didn't get the chance they deserve. The nature of F1 is that it's not always a straight fight. You know, things do go wrong. It's not just about the money. Of course, the money is very important, but it's also about what the uh, universities are bringing to the team. Welcome to Unlapped, Katie George, Lawrence Edmondson, and Nate Saunders, who is extremely forgetful, as we documented on Unlapped last week. I think we could add uh, a new piece of information to his resume. He struggles with time zones. Lawrence, is that is, is that accurate? That sounds pretty accurate. Um, and also, the distance it takes to get from Vienna, where he landed this morning, I think he landed uh, European time about uh, 9 a.m., um, to his hotel in Graz, where he will then go on to the Austrian Grand Prix this weekend. Uh, that's a long drive. And I think he was waking, waiting for a couple of journalists. For some reason, thought that we were recording this podcast in two hours' time and uh, got it all a bit mixed up. So we got, a, we got a message from him in the car, proof as well with a selfie from the passenger seat that he was on his way, but um, not quite in position yet to record this podcast. A, real a beautiful shame. selfie. A beautiful it, selfie. It, well, that's certainly a shame. All of Nate's selfies are beautiful. Let's be honest. They are. Very fair. Very fair. I can't gripe and hit him too hard for this because I struggle with time zone changes too. I'm really bad at it for some reason. I don't know why. And it's it's not like I'm going drastic time zones like the two of you. It's like minus one, plus one for me. And yet I still struggle with that. So we'll get Nate Saunders back on the pod next week when we can react to the Austrian Grand Prix. For now, you've got me and Lawrence Edmondson. Quickly, though, over the weekend, I believe the two of you took in some baseball, America's pastime, at the Olympic Stadium. It was you and a couple of Formula One journalists? Yeah, that's right. No, we um, we have a friend, Chris Medland, who is a Formula One journalist, yeah. works for Racer and a few other outlets. And he's a big Cubs fan. So Cubs are in town. Uh, so he went and bought a bunch of tickets and um we uh yeah we all attended it was it was really good actually uh that stadium was originally built for the olympics in 2012 uh, mm. it's now the west ham football team soccer team uh it's their home ground uh and they converted it into a baseball stadium it was really quite quite cool um and a really great atmosphere like it had a lot of americans there um some of which had traveled over a lot of which uh live in the uk live in london and wanted to go and see uh, some baseball and a lot of Cubs fans, a lot of uh, Cardinal fans as well. So yeah, it was uh, it was really cool to watch. Did you drink a pint and have a hot dog like we would do in Chicago at Wrigley Field? <laughs> I did. I did drink a pint, uh, maybe more than one pint, and uh, but I only had one hot dog. So there you go. Um, and and they were pretty much up to scratch. I think the hot dog wasn't quite up to American standards, but okay. yeah, the, the, the pints were pretty good. Yeah, can't complain. Yeah, we we sadly take hot dogs way too seriously. I did see a video of Nate dancing in the stands, and honestly, I don't think I'll ever unsee it. So it looked like you guys had a great time. So I'm glad to hear it. Well, this is a cool thing about American sports, which we don't get so much in, in UK sports, is that in every little break, every little like intermission in the game, they play music and they play it loud. And, you know... <laughs> Uh, anyone who knows Nate, certainly who knows Nate after one or two pints, knows he likes to dance. So yeah, he was yeah. Uh, he was putting on a show for um, for all the cups fans there. Yeah, I say uh, professional sports and even now college sports in the states, it's sensory overload. There's just something constantly going on around the game. Anyways, glad you guys had fun. Let's dive right into it. Are you or are you not a Wrexham FC fan? 
Uh, I'm not. Uh, I have okay. watched uh, at least most of the first series of um, Welcome to Wrexham. Uh, so I'm I'm more aware yeah. of them than I was when uh, yeah when before uh, Rob McEnany and uh, Ryan Re- Reynolds uh, invested in it. Yeah, it's interesting. I bring it up because Ryan Reynolds certainly headlines the group, but his partner in crime, Rob McElhenney, who he purchased Wrexham FC a few years back and obviously has done a great job from a marketing standpoint, certainly with the documentary and then just the fandom far and wide, as well as Michael B. Jordan have joined a group to invest in Alpine taking a 24% stake of the team. The deal's valued around $218 million, pushing Alpine's value upwards of close to a billion dollars at $900 million. It feels like at this point, Ryan Reynolds and McElhenney need to be on the 2024 ticket here in the United States to run for president and vice president because they're just kind of taking over everything, it seems. What did you make of this deal? And were you surprised at all to see more people clamoring to get involved in F1? Well, we knew that Alpine was looking for a bit of investment and uh, some of the money that was paid in has gone off to pay off the debt that the Renault Group, um, that basically the F1 team had to the Renault Group, which is his parent company. So um, it was clear that they were looking to, uh, you know, to clear that debt and and to also have some money to invest forward uh, for the team. Um, and not hugely surprised at, at the people involved. I mean, I wasn't expecting a couple of Hollywood actors, I have to say. Um, and it seems like they came to the deal relatively late. Um, it was led by uh, Redbird and Otro, uh, two um, capital investment funds, uh, and they bring a lot of expertise in in the world of sports, the world of marketing. And um, Alpine felt that actually, you know, uh, marketing, uh, getting sponsors on board, licensing rights, all that kind of stuff was an area where they didn't have a huge amount of expertise. So they were very keen to point out. Uh, at the launch of all this, that it's not just about the money. Of course, the money is very important, but it's also about what the uh, new investors are bringing to the team. And um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, how much of a change we see, how much of a shift we see, and whether we see any kind of Ryan Reynolds, uh, Rob McElhenney um, in- involvement. Uh, I don't think you can expect a whole docuseries. Um, no. I don't think it's quite the same investment, but um, there was talk um, at the launch that, you know, perhaps there's something they can do with the visibility of the team. Uh, that mm-hmm. was a word that was used by uh, uh, Alpine CEO, Lauren Rossi, about what they would bring and how they would basically make this Alpine brand uh, a, a bit bigger than it already is. And of course, the whole reason we talk about Alpine in F1, I mean, a lot of people, especially in the United States, may not be aware of the Alpine brand at all, because at the moment you cannot buy Alpine cars in the United States. So the whole reason that that brand is in F1 with a company that's owned, sorry, with a team that's owned by Renault, uh, is because they want to promote that brand. They want to make it bigger. They do eventually want to start selling uh, cars in the United States. And so all of this involvement, all of this promotion, uh, getting big names involved in the team is part of that. And it's part of their wider strategy to essentially sell road cars. Also good news for, for Alpine, you know, they, they've got some uh, some big plans, uh, like Almost every team in the F1 midfield, when we talk about mm. Aston Martin, they made the step over the winter. We talk about McLaren wanting to uh, fight for championships. Of course, Alpine wants to do that too. If anything, they have massively underperformed in recent years because they are a works team. So they have their own uh, engine department. It's based in France, but it mm. you know only supplies the Alpine F1 team and works directly with them. So really, you know, they should be up there with the likes of Ferrari, Red Bull and Mercedes, and they're not, and they haven't been for some time. So it's been very clear, and Lauren Rossi referenced this um, at, the, at this uh, launch of, of the announcement of the investment, uh, that they're on this 100 race plan 
they're about two thirds to three quarters of the way into it. And by the end of that, they need to make sure they have absolutely everything and no more excuses, uh, you know, absolutely everything in terms of the factory and the facilities and no more excuses for, uh, for for not being up the front and fighting. So they're targeting around 2025, 2026 to be regular podium okay. finishers and eventually uh, championship contenders. I think you have a really interesting article. It's a great piece on ESPN.com. You can find it now under the Formula One tab. But you outline how Aston Martin's success recently may have impacted this decision for Alpine. Can you kind of expand upon that? Yeah, so this is something that Lauren Rossi, the CEO of Alpine, uh, said. You know, he, he was talking about all these aspirations that they have and how this investment is going to help them get up there. But it, it, it doesn't kind of explain the fact that one of their main rivals, a team they finished ahead of last year, leapfrogged them and have done exactly what Alpine have been talking about for the last three years, which is join mm -hmm. the top three teams. And of course, yeah, we're talking about Aston Martin. And, you know, you can look at Aston Martin and say, well, look, there's all this investment that's gone in. There's the new factory and everything. Well, the car that they're racing now wasn't built in the new factory. It was actually built out of Eddie Jordan's old place with a bunch of porter cabins around it. And really it was done with by employing the right people they brought in some big technical signings they also brought in fernando alonso of course from alpine which um you know doesn't it it's still i think a bit of a, a sore spot at alpine um and and they've been able to do that and fight for regular podiums this year and of course like i said that's exactly what alpine want to do so uh rossi admitted that it was um it was a bit of a wake-up call for them uh, a reality okay. check uh, that uh, you know that they that they need to up their game and they need to be able to uh, compete on that level. These aren't the only guys that obviously want to get involved in Formula One. We know that people are trying to present applications to join the grid. Um, the most recent news is that British racing team High Tech have applied to enter a team in Formula One in 2026 um, with investment from billionaire businessman Vladimir Kim. How long has this deal or this application process been in the works? Well, we've known high tech have been interested for some time. Uh, they were initially interested in, in making it into F1 with backing from um, uh, Nikita Mazepin's fa father. Um, and, you know, that uh, obviously didn't come together and, and uh, the, the Mazepin's actually pulled out of high tech um as uh as a result of the war in ukraine and the sanctions that have come in since yeah. and so uh high tech um have not lost their aspirations to get into formula one we know there's this um process at the moment the fi is vetting uh, potential applicants with the possibility of adding two more teams potentially no more teams but uh two more teams they're in that process right now and high tech have basically said look we are one of those teams we, we have submitted an application and uh and we're interested in, in getting there and then obviously having the backing of uh vladimir kim who has uh huge amounts of wealth as mainly as a result of uh copper mining um is is, is significant because it means that there is at least the money there to, to make this process work yeah. they've also been doing bits behind the scenes you know that they've got a um i understand they've got some kind of applied technologies uh company uh, alongside the racing teams that run in uh, junior series because of course when you're racing in those junior series even up to the level of formula two you're doing it with a what we call a spec chassis so it's a single car you buy it off to lara everyone has the same car of course there's lots you can do with it in terms of preparing it and setup and everything but you're basically dealing with with, with a car that you're buying off the shelf you're not in-house designing in-house making the car and of course that's what you require for formula one so yeah. it is a huge step for a team to go from formula two where high tech are now 
up to Formula One. But it seems like they've already started to put some of the pieces in place. And obviously, they're very serious about this because they've now gone public with, with their desire to do it. Whether whether they make it or not, it's it's almost impossible to say without knowing exactly what they've submitted to the FIA and, and, and what they've got there potentially. The, the one thing which I would say is that um, throughout this process, Formula One especially, which also has a say on the new teams that come in. So you have the FIA, the governing body, which is really checking out you know, the sporting side, making sure they've got the facilities, making sure the funding is, is in place. But then there's also a commercial agreement that any new team would have to come to with, with Formula One to be one of the teams that uh, basically receives prize money at the end of each year. And the one thing Formula One has always said is that any new team has to bring value. It has to bring value to the um to the brand of formula one it has to bring something special and so when andretti and cadillac put forward their names there were still questions about whether that was enough and so whether high-tech gp um and uh you know a, a billionaire businessman sure but you know uh not really a brand that people associate with uh with formula one uh sorry with motorsport and and, and with, with car racing you know is that enough to to, to, to warrant a, a place on the grid? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've got some questions about that. But again, it all depends what high tech put forward to the FIA in Formula One. What do you think is is more apt to happen here? That Andretti and high tech both get approved and we see two more teams on the grid and we go from 10 to 12? Or do you see it's more likely that just one team gets entry or none at all? I mean, all of those are possibilities. And again, it just it just depends on on what they can bring and how convincing and and compelling those arguments are. I think you know it's it's hard to argue that the sport wouldn't benefit from an extra two really well funded competitive teams. Uh, you know, at the moment, okay, we've got a championship that's currently being dominated by one team in Red Bull, but behind that, all the teams are actually quite closely matched now. We don't really have the case where we have a team that that's a long way off the back, and so there's no real. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't really benefit the sport to to bring in two teams that are in their own private battle at the back. And the last time we had new teams come into F1, well, there was Haas, but prior to that, there was uh, three teams. There was a team called Espana, uh, there was Team Lotus, uh, which later changed to Caterham, and there was the Virgin F1 team, which later became Marussia and then Manor. Um, and and the whole time they were in F1, uh, they just weren't able to compete with even you know the back of the midfield. They're in their own private battle at the back, and F1 doesn't need that it doesn't add a huge amount and of course there's this question over um how whether then that they would justify uh, a share of f1's revenues which is what the teams get as prize money at the end of each year and of course if you add two more teams to that you dilute the I amount of prize money available and mm -hmm. so and this is why we also talk about this 200 million entrance fee and whether um you know and that is what teams have to pay currently under the regulations but there's a lot of talk about increasing that uh, increasing that significantly on the basis of the valuations that we've just seen of Alpine at $900 million. Uh, $200 million to get into F1 actually seems relatively cheap considering to buy a whole F1 team <laughs> would cost $900 million, right? So, um, so there's all of those balancing acts, all of those equations uh, to do behind the scenes. And um, I don't think anybody outside of the FIA and F1 can say confidently whether any of the current proposal, you know, proposed F1 teams are going to meet those those criteria. So uh, we'll have to sit out and wait. There's no no deadline on, on when exactly we're going to hear, but um, yeah, hopefully it won't be too long. Because of course, the other thing, remember, is that you know the the these are likely teams coming in 2026, and mm -hmm. um, you know even if 
you found out today, it would still be a rush, I believe, to be able to get a team ready in time. And of course, you're not going to commit too much investment until you know for certain you have a space on the grid. So uh, a lot of moving parts at the moment over over how it's going to play out. And yeah, I'm, I'm not confident enough to predict exactly how many teams and which ones we'll get. Here's a question. And you mentioned we're talking about 2026. We're not talking about next season here. But we've already had our fair share of doubts about certain rookies on the current grid. Are there enough drivers? Are there 24 capable drivers out there to get the job done? That's an interesting question. Um, because yeah, you, you're right. There has been some some questions about some of the rookies on the grid this year, but I personally think a lot of those questions are a little bit unfair. And certainly when you compare it to some of the drivers we've had in F1's recent past, uh, I think the current crop are actually some of some of the best out there. Um, you know, and again it's the thing about having competitive teams isn't it if you've got competitive teams that can that can go and fight right at the front of um of, of f1 uh you know a guy like daniel ricardo probably w- w- would have found a team and you know i think personally he is still good enough to be in f1 but uh all of a sudden his his options of, of competitive teams narrowed down and he was out once McLaren decided they were going to replace him. So um, it, it does depend slightly on, you know, who's in F2, the drivers coming through. I'd have to say at the moment, you know, it would be interesting to see who would end up in the, in those spaces if they, if they occur. But, um, but I don't think it's a bad thing at all. And quite often it's the argument goes the other way is that we're not having enough young drivers coming through, getting a chance, um, you know, too often, older drivers um you know as holding on to seats far too long they're preventing young drivers coming through and so um actually i think it would be a very positive thing to have two extra seats uh to fill and look you know if you get a super license um and that exists within that point system that we've talked about in this podcast before where you have to basically prove yourself in other series to get enough points to put yourself in a position to get a super license if you've done that you are a pretty good driver now lots of people have opinions about how good those drivers are relative to the very best to the max verstappens and the fernando Alonso's, but you're still a pretty good driver and it's very rare that you get someone with a super license who isn't actually capable at least of of, of driving an f1 car and racing an f1 car this podcast is proud to be supported by jets pizza the number one pick in detroit style pizza why it's simple jets is better with the thickest crispiest cheesiest detroit style pizza in the country there's no competition Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. You mentioned unfair valuations. So I'm going to hit you with this quote that came from Helmut Marco, the gift that keeps on giving. He was asked on the Inside Line podcast if he and Red Bull team boss Horner, Christian Horner, often disagree about signings. Marco said, not often, but sometimes we do. The last one, I would say DeVries. Basically, it's Alfatari, but we're a big family and we get opinions. He being Horner was not a fan of DeVries. I would say at the moment, it looks like he was right. 
I always find it interesting when someone talks or speaks for another individual. Now, obviously, Helmut Marco and Christian Horner seem to be in most senses in lockstep with what they they do at Red Bull. What did you make of that comment? Very interesting and and clearly put in a bit of bit of pressure on Nick DeVries, who has already had a fair amount of pressure. I mean, yeah. we already heard about potential ultimatums of various races this year by which he had to improve. And I think he has gradually improved, but clearly the pressure is is not being released. And um, look, I mean, yeah, I'm always slightly sceptical when you have one person saying the other person said this, but um, I can't believe that, you know, what Marco has said is that wide of the mark. Um, you know, there were plenty of people that if what Marco is saying Horner believes uh, held a similar opinion. Uh, Nick DeVries was very impressive in that one race at the Italian Grand Prix last year. And that's basically what got him an Alpha Tauri drive. Um, of course, he did have a lot of experience in Formula E. Uh, he was a champion there. He uh, was also a champion in Formula 2 uh, quite a few years ago now. But all, all of those things added up to a, a fairly good uh, resume. But there was that one factor that he'd never made F1 the first time around when he was younger and when he had got out of F2 and everyone, you know, a lot of people in F1 kind of felt, well, there was a reason for that. Um, look, I, you know, I, I think it is, is a case of, of Marco putting pressure on there. And uh, this is also nothing new within, within the Red Bull driver program. I feel if you sign a contract to drive for one of the Red Bull teams, either in Formula One or even as a junior driver in Formula Two or Formula Three, you're signing up to a huge amount of pressure. And there are so many examples in uh, Formula One history, Formula Two history, Formula Three history of drivers who um, have had a lot of natural talent, but when they come under the pressure of uh, basically donning a helmet with the Red Bull on the side and the you know, and and the competitiveness of that structure and everything that comes with it, uh, things can start, start to go wrong. And I, I think a lot of that pressure does come from Helmut Marco. And lots of people are critical about that. You know, they feel like guys like Brendan Hartley, perhaps, um, Jean-Eric Fern, uh, you could go back to Jaime Algashwari, you could bring it forward to, say, Alex Albon, Pierre Gasly, uh, Carlos Sainz, didn't get the chance they deserved, uh, given clearly how how good they are as, as racing drivers. But at the end of the day, Helmut Marko is really looking for the next Max Verstappen. Prior to that, he was looking for the next Sebastian Vettel, guys who are going to go and win Red Bull multiple world championships. And if you're not one of them, then you're kind of taking up space for potentially somebody else who could come through and do it. And so I think this is probably the way that Marko is looking at it now. He thought, right, let's give Nick DeVries a go. They ended up in that position last year where Pierre Gasly was very keen to get out of the the, the Red Bull kind of family and, and wanted to go to Alpine. That made a lot of sense on a lot of levels. But of course, Red Bull then needed to find a replacement for Gasly. They saw Nick De Vries, they saw how good he was in, in Italy. And I think Marco thought, right, we'll give it a pump. But it was always going to be with that proviso. If you don't perform, then you're basically taking up space for somebody else who could come through and uh and, and take that position. Speaking of somebody else to come through, fair or not, these assessments, I, I often wonder if these comments twice now are politically motivated because you have a Daniel Ricardo who you believe is still a very capable driver, as you said earlier on the pod, could fill that seat if Nick DeVries gets the boot. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that is exactly the other side to to you know to this story is that Daniel Ricardo is there at Red Bull as a third driver. He took on that role at the start of this year, not really knowing where it would take him. But mm -hmm. I would say within the space of three races, I remember I talked to him at the Australian Grand Prix 
And there he was already set on returning to the F1 grid. Uh, since then, uh, Nate did an interview with him in Canada uh, very mm-hmm. recently. And he said the fairy tale ending would be to make it back to the Red Bull team. And we've also um, heard that from reliable sources that he's he'd be okay with making that step into Alpha Tauri next year to then go on and and drive for Red Bull. And, and you know, that is a bit of a turnaround from where he was at the end of last yeah. year where he clearly could have entertained some offers. He clearly could have gone deeper into negotiations with the likes of Haas, uh, maybe even Alpha Tauri, uh, Williams. You know, there, there were there were teams lower down the grid that were interested in him, yet he didn't take up any of those because at that time of, you know, at that mind space that he had coming out of McLaren, he wanted to go and just, you know, have a bit of time to collect himself, think about his options. The Red Bull uh, third driver deal was a perfect way to do that. And already he's talking about about next year. So I think um, it seems pretty clear that it's not really in the interest of Ricardo to try and make that step this year. Uh, But yeah, Marco is putting that that pressure on Nick DeVries. And look, if Nick DeVries turn around and his second half of the year is is one of the best on the grid, you know, he scores multiple points out of nowhere that no one was expecting given the performance of the car and you know he outperforms Yuki Sonoda who is his teammate to 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 a decent level then they'll have to think again they have to think again you know one if we are definitely bringing in Ricardo which driver do we replace but at the moment that answer is kind of obvious to everyone because Yuki is doing a very good job in in one of the Alpha Tauris and Nick DeVries is, is falling short and like I said before F1 is brutal like that, and especially the Red Bull driver program is brutal like that. So, yeah, as long as Ricardo's there, as long as he's saying, look, I'm interested in going back, he's got that test in the uh, in the Red Bull after Silverstone where he's going to uh, work through a tyre program with Pirelli, but he's going to get his first taste of what it's like to be in a Red Bull of this new regulation era. And um, I think, you know, if he does what um, everyone expects him to do there. You know, he's been doing it long enough that I think he will. And he impresses and he kind of clicks with that car. That really could be um, the step that then makes everyone decide, right, Ricardo's our man, um, you know, to to, to replace one of the Alfa Tauri drivers next year. Max Verstappen clearly dominating the sport, but a smaller storyline within Red Bull's organization to certainly monitor as we continue on with the season. As you and I sit here, Nate Saunders is uh, traveling by car to his hotel in preparation for the Austrian Grand Prix. So let's hit our preview, shall we? Another sprint race. Okay, so a little bit different of a format to keep your eye on. Qualies are on Friday. Then we've got the sprint race on Saturday and then the Austrian Grand Prix, of course, on Sunday. Given that it's a sprint weekend, how do you think that that plays into team strategies for qualifying sprint and then obviously the race? So this is the second time we've had this new sprint format. Um, there was the original sprint format and then the Azerbaijan Grand Prix this year, they kind of shaked it up again. So you've essentially got Friday qualifying for Sunday, then you've got Saturday morning qualified for, um, for the sprint race on Saturday afternoon. And uh, the one thing it does do is limits and restricts practice time even more. And so uh, drivers have to be very comfortable with their setups after a single practice session um, when the track is uh, its least representative of how it's going to be in the race because no cars have really run on it, you know, uh, prior to that in the weekend. And they've got to get it all nailed down and be completely happy with it. And of course, we, you know, we saw that trip up a lot of drivers um, in 
in Baku uh, to the point that mm-hmm. I think Nico Hulkenberg and Logan Sargent went back and changed parts of their setup, which meant they start from the pit lane. But, you know, they did it because they hadn't got it right in that single practice session. And therefore, by the time they rolled around to the race on Sunday, they needed to make some changes. And, you know, sacrificing grid positions was was well worth it because they needed to get the car in the right place. And so, um, yeah, huge amount of pressure, even more so if you're bringing upgrades. And uh, we're expecting a big upgrade from McLaren. Uh, this okay. is, another, you know, we had that other one in Baku. So they have weirdly coincided with sprint races which is not what you would normally choose to do but i think just shows how hard they are pushing to get these pieces to the car and they're bringing the first part of this of this b-spec upgrade so a complete overhaul of the car and the way it generates downforce um much like we've seen with mercedes in in monaco this year Uh, but i think it's only going to be applied to lando norris's uh car this weekend before more parts come for for both team for both cars in Silverstone. So um, that's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure yeah. for um, for a driver to deal with because one, you've got to start to understand those upgrades. You've got validation to do on them. And then uh, you have one practice session to decide how you're going to run the car and the setup around it. And so um, that is not easy. So all of that to keep an eye on. But, you know, personally, I don't know how you feel about this, Katie, but I, I think these sprint races are, there's certainly more exciting. There's more going on. If you're like me and you're going to end up with three days of Formula One, I'd much rather have competitive sessions than practice sessions. But um, yeah, I don't know how you feel about it. I I would agree at face value. However, I would say that we have lucked out with qualifying the last three races have been unbelievably entertaining. And now obviously that's in part due to weather, but I like that there's more competitiveness throughout the entirety of the weekend, but I will say I don't take it for granted because qualities of the last three races have been mega and been a lot, a lot. Like I've been on the edge of my seat, especially when we were talking about Canada and everybody trying to decide what to do with the rain with intermediates or not. That was absolutely fascinating. I'm curious. It's a shorter track. How would you describe this circuit? Um, I think it's only nine proper corners. Um, so it's it, it's very unusual and um, it's it's basically built into the side of a hill which then leads up to a mountain so it's it's a beautiful place to visit i'm actually quite uh, jealous of nate uh, working his <laughs> way through the austrian countryside right now because you get some amazing views and mountains as, as as you get closer to the track um so it's it's pretty special and it is you know unique in, in f1 in that it's it's a racetrack in in the alps um so uh yeah that's cool but it it, it is a, an unusual challenge and what we tend to see because it's such a short track and such a fast track uh the margins between drivers you know in qualifying and um to some extent with, with race laps as well but especially in qualifying are very very small because um once everybody gives it everything and the lap is over in about a minute naturally the the, the margins between each car are, are even smaller which means mistakes are also punished very heavily because you can't really make up the time around the rest of the lap so um it's uh it's always a fun one for qualifying and uh, you know we've had some good races there there's there's, there's possibility for overtaking there you know there's um the drs zones which uh which often lead to overtaking either up into turn three which if you look at a track map looks like it should be turn two but that's at the very top of um the hill as they go up and then again into uh turn four which loops back around and that's where um i think quite famously and quite unfortunately for alex albon he was taken out by lewis hamilton a, a few years ago just as it looked like he might actually be on for a race victory early on in his rebel career but anyway um we won't dwell on that but yeah it, it, i, I think it is say- Good track for racing. Albon fans are, are are reminiscing with tears in their eyes from that moment. Um, uh, after what was a really strong performance in Canada for Ferrari. Okay, let's give credit where credit's due. The team finished fourth and fifth. 
uh, second most constructor points on the weekend. Do you feel as if that momentum will be carried on to Austria where I believe it was last year we saw Charles and Max battling to the end in the Austrian Grand Prix and it, it made for for good TV? Yeah, the Ferrari was very competitive here uh, last year. So I think that's, um, that's a positive thing. say it'll be the same. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, certainly the Red Bull wasn't as competitive at this stage of the season and the Ferrari had made a much better start to the season. So we can't guarantee that means that they're going to be uh, in any kind of uh, fight right at the front. But Ferrari's a hard one to uh, to judge at the moment because they had a fairly big upgrade in Spain that changed the look of the side pods. And they had a really mixed weekend there where Carlos Sainz qualified quite well. Leclerc had an awful qualifying session. And then in the race, they both kind of met somewhere in between, um, neither of which were, were very happy with the way the car was performing in the race. Uh, then we went to Canada. Again, two pretty poor qualifying sessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Leclerc falling out slightly with his race engineer over went to pit for intermediate tyres. Um, I still don't think that was the be-all and end-all in that session. I think he still could have made it through and he got his lap together. Um, but then in the race, they nailed the strategy. But, you know, how much of that was performance of the car? Well, clearly there was performance there uh but it was also that they, they did go for a one-stop strategy while so many other drivers went for a two-stop and that allowed them to move up through the field the very positive thing about that is that for most of this year the ferrari has really struggled to look after its tires so the idea of doing one less pit stop than everyone else would have been quite daunting yet they were able with confidence uh to pull off that strategy so if that's anything to go by then i think they are making progress but look you know they, the others just and are not standing still. I mean, Max Verstappen, obviously, and Red Bull, obviously, uh, but also Aston Martin and Mercedes, who have really been Ferrari's main competitors this year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we look back at it, and I think uh, I'm right in saying, you know, the Ferraris on podiums are really rare this year. We've had, uh, yeah. the only one I can think of is Baku, which was the last sprint race, incidentally. Um, but other than that, you know, it just, it just hasn't been clicking for them. So uh, they really need something this weekend, I think. Yeah. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and there's always a race within the race. And right now, I think one of the most interesting storylines is who's going to finish second in the Constructors' Championship behind Red Bull. And right now, that's between Aston Martin and Mercedes, as you say, as Ferrari tries to continue to get its act together. And we see more consistency there. Who would you say has more pressure to perform, Aston or Mercedes in Austria? Well, I think throughout this year, there's way more pressure on Mercedes because what Aston Martin have done already, what they've got in the bank is a big <laughs> step from whatever it was, P7 in the constructors last year to challenge him for P2 is significant. So I think 
you know, all times more pressure is on Mercedes because they themselves admit that they are not where they want to be. Okay, they're making progress as they get back, but the reality was they went into this year thinking that you know they could be able to they would be able to fight for a world championship, and and they're clearly not there. So I think the pressure is always more more on Mercedes, but um, but in terms of who's going to come out on top on that, I think it's you know that that's that's a really interesting one because. Um, you know the uh, the Mercedes seemed very good in high speed corners in Spain. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got an upgrade which has kind of targeted uh, overall um, performance uh, uh, boost, but uh, also you know trying to tackle some of those low speed issues. Uh, there's a few low speed bits in in uh, in Austria, not many. It's mainly high speed. Um, but anyway, so so I feel like on paper it probably suits Mercedes more, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know and that could mean that you know Lewis and and, and Georgia are up there, you know, at the front of that kind of chasing pack. I don't think they'll be quite with uh, Red Bull, but uh, but they'll be up there. Uh, whereas Aston Martin, you know, I think uh, they, they had a recent upgrade package as well, but I think they're still trying to get the very best out of that. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it pans out. I mean, with Fernando Alonso around, you know, it, like, a podium is always possible, isn't it? Uh, he says so. He actually guarantees yeah, it from so, here so. on to the rest of the season. And, and I think it's been fun watching he and Lewis Hamilton battle throughout these races. Do you think that second place in the constructors ultimately comes down to the second drivers on these teams between George Russell and Lance Stroll and their performances for the rest of the season? Yeah. And, and if it does, then Mercedes are <laughs> going to win that battle, like no doubt. Because George, okay, had a bit of misfortune in uh, been very well, consistent. I don't know, maybe misfortune isn't the right word in, in Canada. <laughs> he, he made a mistake in Canada, but um, he's more consistent than Stroll. And I think just fundamentally uh, shown better performance than Stroll this year. Um, but, you know, Stroll has his reasons. There have been, you know, issues along the way, broken flaws in qualifying, things like that. And, uh, you know, missed opportunities in Miami with how many tyres they used in in qualifying. And so, look, you know, I, I, there's part of me which thinks that if Stroll can get it all together, then he'll at least be where Aston Martin need him to be, which is, you know, in the fight, in the mix with Mercedes and, and ahead of the Red Bulls. And he's done that, you know, once or twice this year. But, uh, yeah, consistency is absolutely the key to that. And I think, um, you know, if anything, Mercedes look like they're accelerating a bit more with their progress on the car. So more than ever, Aston Martin needs Stroll to step up. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's uh, the Red Bull ring for a reason. So um, we're obviously going to have a great welcome for Max Verstappen and co. But I want to start with co because Sergio Perez um, obviously has had his fair share of mistakes or um, misfortunes, if you want to call it that in Canada with the rain. Do you feel that this is a race where Sergio Perez gets back into form and we see a full weekend from him? It's what he needs, 100%. Um, And I think we've been saying that going into basically every race, even Monaco going in there, we said, well, you know, this is the street track because we always consider him better at street track. King of the streets! His strength, exactly. And even then we were saying, right, he needs to perform put it in the wall then spain obviously he needs to come back from that makes a mistake in qualifying canada gets caught out in the rain and you know doesn't really make the progress that perhaps you'd expect afterwards so it's um yeah it, it's not been a good spell for for checo and i think any hope of the championship is pretty much dead i mean i'm sure yeah. there'll be checo fans screaming at me right now that you know of course he's still in it mathematically it's still possible but when you're up against someone as good as max verstappen you just cannot afford to make as many mistakes as he had made and you know we're not even halfway through the season so um 
yeah, he 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 does need to step up. Um, and I I guess there's there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be here in in Austria. You know, it's a, there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to perform at this circuit. But I do think it's one where Max has been consistently strong, uh, even when the Red Bull hasn't always been the strongest car around here, and it very often is. But even when it hasn't been, uh, Max has always seemed to get um, something extra out of it. So um, I think for Checo to beat Max is going to be incredibly tough around here but of course he needs to start somewhere and you know if max finishes does win and is unbeatable he needs to make sure he's second can checo challenge max not i'm talking about driver's standings here just in a race for the rest of the season do you think that there is a possibility that he can get back to where he was at the beginning of the season challenging max and ultimately winning races again yeah i absolutely do and for the same reason that when we talk about will red bull win all the races this year um i'm all i'm still skeptical about them being able to do that just because misfortune does come along and you know a time badly time safety car or an engine going at the wrong time uh you know we saw early on of course um uh in saudi arabia max had a drive shaft um issue in qualifying left him down the grid he made it back up to second place which was hugely mm-hmm. impressive but checo had the edge on him from that point onwards because um you know he, he managed it very well so um, in a straight fight, your money would absolutely always be on Max. But the nature of F1 is that it's not always a straight fight. You know, things do go wrong. And for that reason, I'd be very surprised if Checo didn't win another race this year. Um, but, you know, that's not enough, is it, compared to what, what he needs to be doing, which is winning multiple races in a row to get at least some of the points back on, on Max Verstappen. When's the last time a team won every single race in a season? The 50s? Never, never happened. Never, never happened. No, the closest any team came was 1988, McLaren. Uh, 16 okay. races that year. They won 15. Uh, they were leading. Uh, Edson Senna was leading in the McLaren. Uh, Mons were the one race they didn't win, but was taken out by a bank marker. And then Ferrari went on to win, which was obviously very popular uh, among the home crowd, but did kind of slightly plot that that record. Um, but it was, uh, okay, it was a bit before my time. I was two years old, so I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that, that I remember it well. But okay. um, but uh, from everything that I've, I've read about it, um, you know, it was a similar kind of car. This car turned up um, when they first tested it. Uh, I was listening to a, a podcast with Neil Oatley, um, the Beyond the Grid podcast. Mm-hmm. He was talking about it recently. He was one of the, the guys behind the design of it. And uh, apparently Alan Prost, the other driver that year, got out of the car after testing in it and said, we can win the championship. And you'd probably believe that after the first day in Bahrain, when Max Verstappen got out of this year's Red Bull, he had Still exactly good. the same thing in his mind, even if he didn't vocalize it. So, yeah, it's um, it, it a very similar thing where, you know, huge margins in in races uh, that they were winning by. And so, um, you know, that kind of suggests that it is it is almost possible, but it's just never quite happened. Even Mercedes during their their dominant period in, in the more recent past um, could never quite get it together. They, I think they missed out on three races in 2014 and I think 2016 as well. And then perhaps 20... Well, I can't remember, but what one of the seasons that they were just a couple of races off. But yeah, it's it's just so hard to get it all together and you know to 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 put all of that in, in place, especially when you're dealing with seasons as long as they are now. You know, you just increase that chance of of just one race being there where it doesn't all fit together. I have to say, if I was an older driver and I'm watching Max Verstappen pick people off on the all times win list, I would have a little bit of a gripe of I mean, now you're talking about 23, 24 races. That's a lot more opportunity than some of those guys in the past had, but uh, nonetheless, still very, very impressive. 
You mentioned Alpine trying to raise their standard, McLaren bringing upgrades to Austria. Alex Albon had a great performance in Canada. When you look at best of the rest, who's maybe somebody you're going to keep your eye on this weekend? Um, I've been increasingly impressed by Esteban Ocon um, uh, at Alpine. Um, And I think, you know, he obviously got that podium in in Monaco, which was a real high point, but he's Mm -hmm. consistently been, been putting it together. And Alpine, you know, we, We've written bits about them earlier this year and how upset Lauren Rossi was after yeah. the Miami Grand Prix that they were making kind of mistakes over and over again. Uh, when we asked him about that on on Monday at, at the launch of this uh, investment news, uh, he basically said, "Look, you know, he was disappointed with, with with mistakes being repeated, with some of the things that were going on specifically, and he kind of." maybe didn't row back on the comments but he certainly suggested that a lot of those issues have been addressed and I think you're starting to see that in the results at Alpine um but the one thing that's clear is that Ocon is is more comfortable with that car than than Pierre Gasly perhaps not surprising considering this is Pierre's first Mm -hmm. season at Alpine but yeah Esteban Ocon I think is, is is knocking together some some pretty good results so right now pretty much any track we go to just because of the way the competitiveness of the cars is and how it's balanced out over over the season, I feel like outside your top four, Alpine are, are the next best bet. And of those yeah. two drivers, Ocon is the guy who's usually coming out on top. Fair enough. Uh, because there are smarter minds out there than I, uh, and because I couldn't even really handle or digest the scoring system that I created for our predictions thus far <laughs> on the season. Zach, our lovely producer, has decided to rearrange the point system. So here's how we stand. If you get the first place P1 winner accurately predicted, you get three points. Second place, two points. Third place, one point. If you hit them all three in a row, you get an extra point for hitting the trifecta, okay? So here's where we stand with our new point system after eight rounds. Lawrence, you are at the top of the table with 20 points. Congratulations. Nate is at 12 points. Okay, so eight behind you. And I'm at 10 points, but I would like an asterisk next to my score because I did not compete in the first two weekends. But I believe that I'm going to make a strong push here in the middle part of the season. I've done a better job this, this week around because I've got Nate's predictions for Austria. Here's what he's texting from the car as he gets to the hotel. Max Verstappen, Fernando Alonso, Sergio Perez on the podium with his teammate at the Red Bull ring. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a pretty solid prediction. Uh, Fernando Alonso is always a fairly safe bet at the moment, isn't he, for a podium? And uh, yeah, I think I, 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 for the last few rounds, I've put Checo in the top three, thinking that he'll bounce back. And like we were talking about earlier, you know, he's had so many bad races. You kind of feel like it's got to happen at some point. But yeah, mm-hmm. pr- pretty solid, pretty solid. And I think Nate's Nate's feeling the pressure a bit. He's gone very, very conservative there. No, no big surprises. <laughs> That's basically been my approach the whole season. Just the only reason I'm leading because I just keep doing boring predictions. But um, yeah, fair enough. Pretty good. How about you, Katie? What you got? I'm gonna. So are you sticking with his, his exact predictions? Sorry, say again. Are you sticking with Nate's predictions? You're doing the same three. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to go different, but I was going to let you go first. Thank you, a gentleman. (laughs) I am going to go with Max Verstappen. Surprise shocker. After that, I think I've gotten messed up because I've put a Mercedes at two and then Fernando Alonso at three. Oh, and then it's always a gamble if you try to put Ferrari up there and I'm behind, you know, I need a sure thing here. All right. I'm going to go Max Verstappen, Fernando Alonso, 
Lewis Hamilton, which is exactly what we saw in Canada. And I'm hoping that we see something a little bit different, but I feel like that's a safe bet. I think I think that would still be a good race. I mean, we said so many times, haven't we, that Max Verstappen's almost a given to win. So it's like that's everyone's uh, number one. So yeah. behind that, at least, yeah, you've got an exciting, exciting race going on. I'm going to go slightly different, mix it up a little bit. I'm still going to go with Max Verstappen number one. Okay. Because that's basically how I've scored all my points this year. Uh, then I'm going to go with um, Lewis Hamilton number two. Nice. Charles Leclerc number three. Good for Bring you. Ferrari back into it. Sprint Good race for weekend. you. Um, uh, we should probably also point out this is this is for the race, not the sprint. We're not doing sprint. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, suggestions because that would just add Good disclaimer. <laughs> and Nate hasn't given us one, so uh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll we'll stick with that. But yeah, just that's, the race. Uh, that's where we stand. I think that's fair. Awesome. As always, we appreciate your analysis. We also appreciate you watching, listening. Remember, if you're watching us on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment and subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, certainly hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Enjoy the race. Will I see you on the ESPN post-race show after? You will. Looking forward to it. Lovely. As am I. Have a great weekend and we'll see you Sunday. Cheers. Cheers.